Bibles, please turn to the 41st chapter of Genesis. Genesis 41. In this chapter tonight, Joseph's dreams from chapter 37 are finally given substance. The scope of what those dreams promised was unimaginable when they finally came true for Joseph. We began to explore last week the fact that the prominence of dreams in the story of Joseph are a testament to the sovereignty of God. This is the means by which God was working in this great story. Pharaoh's dreams tonight recall the dreams of his two officers, right? The cupbearer and the baker, which in turn recall the two dreams of Joseph that his brothers, his family would bow down to him. Joseph's future has always been in the hands of a sovereign God, just as ours is tonight. In chapter 41, this sovereign God exalts the prisoner Joseph to be a ruler of Egypt in order to save the world from famine. What encouragement this would have been to Israel as they read it, as she herself had been imprisoned in Egypt, uh, held captive there for hundreds of years, centuries later captive again in Babylon to entrust themselves to their sovereign God's good providence. A God who ultimately tonight exalts his suffering servant to a place of kingship to save the entire world for something far greater than Joseph is here. And if you know your hymns very well, you know where I got the title for tonight's sermon. I didn't come up with it. Originally written by William Cooper or Cowper, who suffered from horrendous depression, by the way, in England in 1773 when there was no help for that sort of thing. God moves in a mysterious way. He writes... Trust not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. One day, Joseph was lying in a slave's prison. Literally the next, he's the prime minister of the entire empire of Egypt. And while you and I won't always experience the same tremendous reversal of fortunes, we who live in a cursed and fallen world subjected to futility one day, will in the next be in the presence of the one true and living God forever and ever. The text reveals through dreams that God is sovereign. That's what we've seen. But the events of chapter 41 apply that theology, if you will, to us. God's people can and must entrust themselves to their sovereign God's good providence. Let me pray one more time for us. Father, I ask that you would open our hearts our minds to understand your word, to hear and to believe it. Father, please consume me that I might speak for your name's sake the story of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us all to hear clearly, Father, to cut through all the noise of our lives and of this world and for a few moments be transported to another world that transcends this one. I ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ for this. Amen. You remember the events of chapter 40, right? We've been hearing these stories since we were kids, probably. The butler or cupbearer and baker of Pharaoh landed in prison with Joseph, and they had two dreams on the same night that they couldn't interpret, right? But God had given wisdom to Joseph to interpret these dreams. As it turns out, God has ordained them as a means of revealing his design for Joseph in Egypt. All Joseph asked for interpreting this was that the cupbearer would remember him when he was released from prison, but he forgot all about him. 
even though his interpretations of the dreams were absolutely correct. And Joseph remained in an Egyptian prison after that during what was certainly the darkest, most difficult time of his humiliation. But God doesn't forget Joseph. Something happens that finally makes the cupbearer remember. Pharaoh himself, the ruler of all Egypt, has two dreams. Let's pick it up in verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 8 to start. After two whole years, that's Joseph in prison, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. What are they eating in Egypt with these dreams? So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. It's no small thing that in Pharaoh's first dream he is standing by the Nile. The Nile River is the lifeblood of Egypt. Once a year, the Nile overflowed its banks, covers that narrow strip of the desert, leaving behind this fertile silt for the whole area. But as Pharaoh stands by it in his dream, he sees seven attractive and plump cows come up out of the river, then he sees another group of cows come out, but they are ugly or evil, it can be rendered, and thin. And they eat the seven attractive and plump cows. At that, Pharaoh wakes up, but then he falls asleep again. He has a second dream. In this one, he sees seven ears of grain, plump and good, growing on one stalk. Then he sees seven more, thin and blighted by the east wind. They swallow up the seven plump and good ears. Pharaoh awakens. His spirit is troubled, so he calls for the magicians, the wise men of Egypt. None of them can interpret the dreams, not one of them. The implication here, behind the scenes, is that Pharaoh is not in control, right? Um, imperial knowledge has failed Egypt. Something has happened, and he doesn't know what to make of it. He doesn't know what it means. Neither do his highest and most skilled advisors. In that culture, as they perceived it, it's a major problem, a major issue. Walter Brueggemann talks about how unauthorized and unacceptable messages have permeated the empire without Pharaoh's permission or knowledge. Pharaoh is not in charge of everything. So the court grinds to a halt. There's no one that can interpret these dreams to Pharaoh's satisfaction. Not one of all his wise men can help him understand this message or where it came from. This issue, this problem, jogs the cupbearer's memory finally. So we pick it up in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Beloved, think about this for a minute. Even the forgetfulness of the cupbearer is the sovereignty of God. 
If he would have remembered two years ago, it would not have been at the opportune time that causes the events we're about to read. Again, remember these little things like this. It would not have felt like God was working for you when the cupbearer forgot. And yet that's precisely what's happening. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Don't miss that. That's happened twice for Joseph. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Once more from the pit, Joseph is rescued. And Joseph the Hebrew finally appears before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Can Joseph do what none of Pharaoh's best advisors and magicians can? The first thing he does, interestingly, is correct Pharaoh. In verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, meaning an answer to his liking. Finally explain the dream. Joseph puts all the focus on God here. He's setting apart Pharaoh and God without really saying that's what he's doing. The knowledge and understanding Pharaoh so desperately craves then cannot be found in Egypt. It resides with God and God alone. We see that here. We That's all through this text. Here in verse 16, later in verse 25, verse 28, verse 32, the text keeps bringing us back to this, that it's in God that the knowledge necessary resides. Pharaoh's looking to the wrong person. Joseph is saying, left to himself, Joseph can no more accurately interpret dreams than Pharaoh's court, but he knows that God, this God, will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Apparently, Pharaoh is satisfied with his response, so he explains his dream to him in verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin. Notice that. Poor Very ugly, thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. In his retelling of the dream, in Pharaoh's account of the dream, the first account was the narrator's, in Pharaoh's account of his dream, he focuses on the negative aspect of the seven thin and ugly cows, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. That's the part of the dream that bothers him, apparently. Pharaoh isn't exaggerating here. He knows that whatever this dream means, it means something terrible. He's unsettled. So he continues in verse 22. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. This time, he stresses the failure of his magicians to interpret the dreams to his satisfaction. Will God reveal the meaning of the dreams to Joseph? Look at the first part of verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. Maybe the magicians had tried to interpret the dreams as separate with different meanings which would have hidden the meaning if they even could have seen it at all. Apparently they couldn't. But the two dreams have a single meaning, just as Joseph's two dreams had back in chapter 37. Look at the second part of verse 25. 
God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. In giving this dream to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is going to do in his kingdom of Egypt. Think about this. Do you hear what is unsaid here, beloved, in verse 25, about who actually rules over the kingdoms of men? God is telling Pharaoh, and to an Egyptian, they were equal. They were the same. I am about to do something in your kingdom, and I'm going to tell you about it before I do it. There's nothing you can do about it. This is what I'm going to do. Verse 26. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams, dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Seven years of bountiful harvests, followed by seven years of famine. That is what God is about to do in Egypt. Sovereign, beloved, God is sovereign. He controls his creation, all of it. Human beings, human lives, governments, empires, authorities, and now nature itself. Joseph isn't concerned with the details of the dreams. He's turned toward God in verse 25 and verse 32, the one Pharaoh actually has to deal with. That's what Joseph is implying here. Again, even the future of pagan Egypt is not in the hands of Pharaoh. God is sovereign there too. God is at work, both free and sovereign, in the very center of Egyptian existence itself. If God does not give Pharaoh these dreams, the people of Egypt and the known world apparently are going to die. Joseph gives one sentence in his description to the seven years of plenty, if you notice that, and five sentences to the seven years of famine. The famine is the big deal, right? The, the, uh, the plenty will be forgotten after the first seven years since the famine of the next will be so severe. Joseph is sounding an alarm. And seven years of famine would have been unheard of in Egypt. Remember, the Nile River normally flooded the fields once a year with moisture and this fertile silt they use, but Pharaoh... Here's this thing is fixed. It is going to happen. It doesn't matter how rare it is, how unlikely it is. It is going to happen. Verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, so God ensured that he had two, means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. The plan is set by God. It will happen soon. <clears throat> God's sovereign providence has decreed seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And again, there is nothing Pharaoh or Egypt or the world can do about it. Who can resist his will? Who can turn back the hand of God? There are evidences of that. The reason the Bible says things like that about God is because God has shown that that is true time and time again. This is one of those times. There's nothing Egypt can do to change this. Again, who is really in charge is what God is showing in time in Egypt. It's 
fixed by Him. But, beloved, I want you to notice something. Because this is one of those crucial moments in the Bible when we're invited to understand theology better and we normally miss it. We normally skip over it. God's sovereignty, this is what's going to happen, is not the end of human planning. It doesn't mean, oh, okay, it doesn't matter then. It's fixed. No, it's the basis for human planning. You see that. That is so crucial for us to understand about God. His sovereign providence does not make everything fatalistically worthless and unnecessary. Well, it's already determined. What difference does it make? That's a worldly way of thinking and a carnal way of rejecting sovereignty. It's like a little kid stomping their feet because they don't like what they've heard. That's what we do with theology that we don't like. It's sovereignty is presented to us as an opportunity to respond with faithfulness and submission to God. This is a pattern to understand all scripture, beloved. We are faced with it again and again and again in the Bible. The sovereignty of God in everything, even the salvation of people. Let's be clear, right? God's sovereignty is the grounds, not the end of human activity. We read this morning in Titus 1 that God has an elect, right? If everyone's elect, you're not using the word elect. It has no meaning. Let's be honest. You use it for a reason. And you don't elect people that have already elected themselves, despite what we've just experienced as a country. But that's not the way election works. We know what elect means. That's why we run from it. Right? We read this morning God has an elect. The sovereign prerogative of God is clear in the doctrine of election. Now, what's one of the reasons we reject this? Because we carnally say, again, like a child stomping their feet, well, I guess that makes evangelism worthless. Nothing matters now. It's all fixed and all done. Heard that when I was growing up. I went to our pastor that we had at the time and asked him, about some of these things, and he said, he, he answered me all my questions by telling me this story. He said, uh, did you hear about the Calvinist that fell down the steps? And he got up and said, I'm glad that's over with. That was the explanation I got for the sovereignty of God in salvation. I'm not talking about Calvinism. I don't care about systems. I'm not interested in that. The sovereignty of God in salvation does not make evangelism worthless. It guarantees its success, beloved. It's fixed by God. The means by which God will preserve people from the famine he has decreed is the planning of Joseph. You see that? It's not like this is going to happen, so I'm going to magically make food appear. No, there's a plan based on the sovereignty of God. That for seven years, you'll take one-fifth of everything that's harvested. That's the means by which what I've decreed will happen. Right? The means by which God will preserve people from the famine, he's decreed, is Joseph's planning. The means by which God will save his elect is evangelism. That's the way the Bible presents these things. Our responsibility is not to throw philosophy in there and create all these questions like the Sadducees would. Let's say a guy dies and his wife marries his brother and then he dies and then they marry his brother and then he dies and she marries the third brother. No. Right? What does that response elicit from Jesus? You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. That's why you make up these dumb questions that have nothing to do with the truth being the truth. Right? We do this all the time. Our responsibility 
is to respond to sovereignty with faithfulness to God and trust in God. Not disregard, not cynicism. So Joseph continues. Look at verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land might not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Notice the details of that plan in response to the sovereignty of God. News of the coming famine isn't good news, but Joseph's proposal is good news. Pharaoh and all his court are pleased with it. So the word of deliverance from God through Joseph has brought peace and calm to the court of Egypt. Perfect, Joseph has to be thinking here. In this moment, this is perfect. This is just the kind of thing Joseph wanted. Surely now, finally, he'll be set free. But Joseph is in for a surprise. As William Cooper wrote in that same song, God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. All those long years and in a moment comes something he could not have imagined in his wildest dreams. Look at verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. Pharaoh makes Joseph the Hebrew the prime minister of all Egypt. And it isn't because Joseph is so smart. Remember, it's because God is with him and had given him wisdom. He becomes second in command to only Pharaoh himself. This is absurd. Pharaoh puts his own signet ring on Joseph's hand, meaning Joseph has the authority to validate documents in the king's name. He woke up this morning in prison. Right? Think about this reversal. Pharaoh dresses him in robes of fine linen, puts a gold chain on his neck. It's like the prodigal son coming home. It's one of the highest distinctions the king of Egypt could bestow on someone, this gold chain. Then he let him ride in the chariot that was second in line to his own. And the people cried out in front of him as he rode by, bow the knee. Jacob's beloved son has become Egypt's beloved son. We pick it up in 44. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph's Egyptian name most likely means God speaks and lives in Egyptian. He's given a wife of nobility, Asenath, the daughter of an Egyptian priest. He's transformed from an imprisoned Hebrew slave to an Egyptian nobleman. Again, he's now the prime minister of all Egypt. Just by the way, what do you think Potiphar's wife was thinking 
when this decree came out. This is unheard of. Look at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Joseph gathers up 20%, remember one-fifth, back in verse 34, of each harvest during the first seven years of plenty, stores it in granaries in the cities of Egypt. There ends up being so much they just stop measuring it. It doesn't matter anymore. But during this time, in addition to fruitful harvests, Joseph himself becomes fruitful. The reader knows this is also in the hand of God. Look at verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of Owen, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph hasn't forgotten who he is. Those are Hebrew names, beloved. His firstborn Manasseh, which means making to forget, because God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. It doesn't affect him the way it did before, is what he's saying. The second son, Ephraim, which sounds like the Hebrew word for twice fruitful, because in verse 52, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God made Joseph forget, and God made Joseph fruitful. Both of those things in the land of his affliction. In Egypt, this happened to Joseph. Verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So at first, the famine isn't even felt in Egypt. But then, as Pharaoh's dream had implied, the famine is so severe that it finally spreads to Egypt. Verse 55, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up, opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. So Joseph gives orders to open up all the storehouses, sell the grain to the hungry Egyptians. Everyone is fed, and we read in verse 57, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt. Remember, this is the book of Genesis. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. The entire known world, from the writer's perspective, was hit by this famine. So all the earth, in that regard, comes to Joseph, to Egypt, for food. Now, it probably looked like, to those who saw it, that Pharaoh had made Joseph what he was, right? Everything he was given, his office, his status, privilege, his name, even his wife, all of it came from Pharaoh, or did it? The book of Genesis has revealed to the reader that it was not the hand of Pharaoh that remade Joseph. Pharaoh is helpless at the beginning of chapter 41. If Joseph isn't there, this famine kills everybody. If Joseph isn't there, God has remade Joseph. 
without even removing him from the land of his affliction. It was God who brought Joseph to the recognition of Pharaoh. It was God who gave Joseph the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, which led directly to the provision necessary to save people from the famine. As John Walton writes, he is not Pharaoh's instrument of economic survival. He is God's instrument of salvation. In verse 57, we find that Joseph is God's instrument for saving the known world. Sidney Gradonis writes that in his providence, the sovereign God exalted the prisoner Joseph to ruler of Egypt in order to save the world from famine. Why? Beloved, why this? Why now? Why Joseph? Why this family? Why Egypt? The book of Genesis. God is a God of plan and promise. God had made a promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12:3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is a fulfillment of that promise in this text when through Joseph the Hebrew, the descendant of Abraham, God blesses all the earth with food in verse 57. But, beloved, that's awesome, it's beautiful, it's amazing, but Moses, the author of Genesis, ultimately wrote about another son, about Jesus, John five forty six. The promise to Abraham finds its full and final fulfillment in Abraham's true seed, Jesus Christ. What does Jesus provide for all the earth? John three sixteen. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Food doesn't do that. Jesus does that. When Jesus proclaimed... In John 6.35 and verse 51, that he is the bread of life come down from heaven and whoever eats of this bread will live forever. He is proclaiming that the sovereign God has finally exalted the true suffering servant to kingship. Joseph then, but Jesus now, in order to give eternal salvation to the whole world. Joseph, the servant of God, reminds us of Jesus, the son of God. We find in verse 38 that the Spirit of God dwelt in Joseph. Yes, but the Spirit of God descended to remain on Jesus in John 1, 32. As Joseph was God's prophet and bringing God's word to these people in times past, as spoken of in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Jesus is God's chief prophet. In Matthew 12, 41 to 42, his final word from heaven, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, Joseph was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to rule as his prime minister. Jesus has been exalted to God's right hand to rule the nations as king of kings and lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.15, Revelation 17.14, 19.16. In verse 43 tonight, all the people of Egypt were commanded to bow before Joseph. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In Philippians 2.10, with bread Joseph saved Thousands upon thousands from death, but Jesus, the bread of life, saves an innumerable company like the stars, like the sand from eternal death in John six fifty one. Did it look like that's what was happening in prison or in a pit when your own brothers threw you down there? 
Did it look like that's what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane? Or at Calvary, as the king hung bloody and dying on a cross? Providence is always working. It just rarely looks like that's what's going on. With the story of Joseph, God was encouraging the Israelites, encouraging his people to trust him. He was teaching them of how his providence worked itself out in their lives. And because of that, to entrust their whole selves to this good providence. And now, beloved, that all is said and done, Jesus Christ himself encourages us in Matthew six thirty-one to 33. Right, even down into the muck and the details of every li- everyday life. Don't worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. It's those who aren't God's people that strive for all those things and worry and stress over all those things. And indeed, your Heavenly Father knows that you need those things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Along the way, we can infer. Beloved, just stay the course tonight. Just stay the course until it's done. He will not leave or forsake. When the, I don't know who said it or where the, the little anecdote comes from, but You've, you've probably seen it or read it. When a train goes through a tunnel and it's pitch black and you, you can't see anything, you don't jump off. You trust the skill of the conductor. Beloved, God is working things out. That's all I can tell you. But I promise you that's true. There's a plan here and there's a promise to see it through. Just trust Him. Just trust him. The names of Ephraim and Manasseh remind us that God not only made Joseph forget the pain of his past, but also that God made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. Do you do we realize tonight how big of a deal that is? How wonderful that is to read. God did all that for Joseph in Egypt, not outside of it. He didn't get him out of there to do this. He exalted him right in the middle of it. Paul knew the truth revealed there very well. Very well. He comments on it, in fact, if we could say that, in Romans eight thirty-five and 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All horrible things. Horrible things. I... I, I I don't mean to be funny at all, but nakedness is on that list. Paul had been stripped naked for the sake of the gospel. That's humiliating. Imagine that in front of a mob. And he had experienced it. Those are the moments when you may feel that you are forsaken. Naked in front of a crowd that wants to kill you. It, it's, again, it's, it's not a platitude. It's real. And he says, in, no, in all these things. Notice the importance of that. That's so big. We tend to think following God means you're never in these things. Beloved, that's all it means in a world like this. In 
all these things. In Egypt, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All the promises of God are ours right here tonight in the land of our sojourn and affliction this evening. One of the things that the greatness, the literal greatness of America is, is that in one sense, it, it is, it is hurt our ability to read the Bible as, as what it is. And I don't say that to be disrespectful. I hope you know that by now. That's never my goal about America when I, when I talk like this. America has never felt like it's a land of sojourn. It's always been so great it feels like home. And, and maybe now as, as things, I don't know what the speed of the drift will be. I really don't. But I just, it's going, it, it may be in our lifetimes that it begins to feel like Egypt to Joseph a lot more than it feels like this place where everything, like it's just a big Disneyland. I, I, I think it's changing. The, the thing we have to realize is that the Bible's always been written to people in Egypt, not people in paradise, yet. Our identity in Christ our Savior transcends the reality in which we live on a daily basis to such a degree that what He has accomplished for us at Calvary all those thousands of years ago has more defining power over who we are than where we are or what we're experiencing, beloved. It's more real over you what Jesus has accomplished than any other aspect of our identity or experience. Jesus is more real than our feelings. Right? He never promised us that we would feel forgiven. Right? He just said we would be. He never promised us that we would feel all the things that were promised. But the promise is clear and true nonetheless. You and I are not subjected. Our destiny is not determined by our feelings. But by the promise. He's more real. I, 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 I love that idea. There's a, a, a beautiful song by a group called Asaph. It, it, it's called Reality, and in parentheses, I think it says on depression. That talks about Jesus being more real than the lies we tell ourselves, the lies we listen to. Jesus being more real than the issues, the problems that we face. He's more real than that. What's more real than reality? Jesus is. Jesus is. The reason that our identity in Christ transcends the reality in which we live on a daily basis is because the sovereign God who saves us and calls us his own rules over everything by his gracious providence for the sake of his children. There's not a situation you can be in. There's not anything that can happen to you in a place where God isn't sovereign over all of it. You remember the movie... A Few Good Men. How many of you have ever seen that? Okay, that great acting moment by Jack Nicholson. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall, which he's exactly right. <laughs> it's funny in the movie, but he's right. But that's what you and I have. That's what you and I have. You, you have the warrior king of all creation on the wall. 
all the time, watching over everything. The, the, the darkest moments of your lives, Jesus was more real there than the moment was. That, that, that's not cheapening what we feel in the darkness at all. Like, that's not Christianity. Christianity isn't learning a way to deny how things feel. That's the, no, it, it's, it's knowing that Christ is present at the worst of feelings, at the worst of times. Beloved, we simply have to trust him. That's all there is to it. And the amazing thing is, I realized at this point in my notes, like when I was writing it, there's not much else I can say in this world. We just have to trust him. It's going to go the way it goes here, right? So God's people can and must entrust themselves to their sovereign God's good providence. Right? Out of some dreams and the envy and hatred of some brothers and the trading path of a group of Ishmaelites and the schemes of a scorned woman, a forgetful butler. Oh, and by the way, the king of all Egypt... God brought food to the nations, preserved his people, made his name great. I'm not saying anything we experience that is hard is not a big deal, right? Or that it's somehow easy because we're believers. That's a lie. That's a lie. I think it's much harder for the believer to go through pain in light of what we know is true, right? I mean... Because we're faced with the question, I thought you were for me. Right? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to exalt us above the world. I'm saying God has given us the illumination to understand the word. And so we think, wait, 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 wait. I I thought, I thought things were supposed to go well. I was, you know, I was doing everything right. I was trying the best that I could. I I was, I was secure. Things were good. And it's just been ripped out from under me. But then you, you realize as you read the Bible, that's the story. God's not going to make it, God's not going to make you want to live here. He's just not. So I'm not saying anything we experience that is hard is not a big deal or that it's somehow easy. I love that of all the people and books and theories and philosophies, the one person that doesn't make light of suffering is God. I am saying that we simply don't know what our sovereign God's good providence is actually up to. We just don't always know. But we know he's always at work to bring about his design from the pit to the empire, beloved. So trust not the Lord by feeble sense. Right? What a line. Only... A horribly depressed person can write that line. Trust not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. The cross means God is not against you or I. No matter what. 
The cross has purchased God's smile over you forever. Don't ever let anyone or anything ever tell you different or take that away from you. People will hurt you. You will experience pain. And I, I know I know this congregation enough by now to know that most of you are older than me and you're saying, who are you telling, young man? Right? So I'm not trying to... I, I, just, I just want you to know that. I want you to go to bed with that tonight. Right? This... And, and, and look... I'm not being pessimistic. I wish I was. I wish it wasn't that bad or hard to live. I really do. And of course, everybody's different and feels it different and processes it differently. The Bible is a story of miserable loss and eternal gain. What, when Jesus came, beloved, what did the best of us experience? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's life in this world. It doesn't mean he couldn't smile. It doesn't mean he never laughed. It doesn't mean he couldn't enjoy things. It simply means at the end of the day, life is hard and Jesus is great. That's what it means. What began as the provision of food in Egypt, beloved, became the accomplishment of our redemption for the whole world. We are never safe until we entrust ourselves and our whole lives to the sovereign God. But then, even if our bodies burned away, we're completely safe forever. There's nothing else in reality to cling to. Nothing. For God's king has secured Everything for all who believe, for you, for me. Just trust him. Just trust him. Let me pray and then we'll sing of God's amazing grace and we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for the truth that comes from your word because it doesn't come from anywhere else. I thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for your plan. I thank you for your promise. I thank you for glimpses into history like this. Lord, may your people not trust you by means of feeble sense, but trust you for your grace, knowing that when it seems like Providence is frowning. There's a smiling face, Lord. We thank you for who you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray and look to you and trust in you. Help us, Father, when we don't. Keep us when we can't keep you. Amen. Amen.